You know, this is a whole new segment of the healthcare industry, telemedicine, and it comes with associated opportunities and risk for students looking forward to potential careers on the one hand, for, as you said, the investor and VC community looking for the next Uber or or what have you. And I'm in conversations with people pitching me on that kind of thing, people asking me for advice on whether this thing makes sense or doesn't constantly. That was Dr. William Hansen of the University of Pennsylvania Health System speaking about telemedicine, which is our topic on today's episode, episode number 50 of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. As mentioned, today we're going to be speaking about a growing trend in healthcare, the use of telemedicine. In the first part of this two-part series, we discussed such things as the evolution of telemedicine, how it's been used in recent years differences in the use of telemedicine globally, and some aspects of COVID-19's impact on telemedicine. In the second part of this series, we continue our discussion of COVID and telemedicine, plus discuss the future and potential opportunities offered by telemedicine. To help us do all this, we've got an expert in that field. He's Dr. William Hansen. C. William Hansen III, MD, is Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care surgery, and internal medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Hansen is also an internist, anesthesiologist, and intensivist. He is currently the Chief Medical Information Officer and Vice President of the University of Pennsylvania Health System and Interim Chair of Anesthesiology and Critical Care. His anesthetic specialty is cardiac anesthesia for cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, as well as lung and heart transplantation. Dr. Hansen's research using electronic nose technology to detect diseases such as pneumonia and sinusitis by breath analysis has been featured in Scientific American. He recently published The Edge of Medicine, The Technology That Will Change Our Lives, a nonfiction book profiling innovations in biotechnology that are changing the delivery of medical care and the ways in which they're altering the human experience. He has also published Smart Medicine, How the Changing Role of Doctors Will Revolutionize Healthcare. In this book, Dr. Hansen reveals the revolutionary changes that will soon be sweeping through the medical community. His research has been featured in national and international publications, including Popular Science, U.S. News and World Report, and he's been a guest on NPR's Fresh Air, as well as television documentaries on the Discovery Channel. I have a question for you about COVID and telemedicine. You alluded to the baby boomers. We are baby boomers, but you alluded to our parents. I've lost mine, but there still are a lot of people who maybe are less comfortable with technology. And what I'm curious about is to access telemedicine, you need a computer or your phone or whatever. How have you found during COVID 
it's worked for people who maybe are over 75 years of age, let's say. How does it work? Because that could be a challenge for individuals who maybe don't have a smartphone or really aren't as conversing with the computer. What's been your experience with that during COVID, Bill? Well, there's no question but what there are potential new healthcare disparities relating to telemedicine. Mm. So, you know, you, you offer telemedicine, people don't have the sophistication, they don't have the devices, they don't have access to internet, and therefore those folks that lack those things are relatively uh, disenfranchised in this new movement. Uh, and we've actually shown that there, there are disparities relating to gender, relating to ethnic background, and certainly relating to uh, socioeconomic status. And frankly, have done so to figure out ways to help with that. So provide phones with plans to patients who would benefit from that uh, where appropriate. My mother is 91. Wow. And, yeah. And is very sophisticated consumer of technology. She's an inherently curious person and, and loves to be able to find out information. Uh, as her grandchildren have found out sometimes to their joy, sometimes to their embarrassment. But, you know, she's figured out how to work social media, to work Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. Wow. And she she uh, pivoted pretty easily to telemedical encounters, as did many of her friends. So uh, now, admittedly, these are folks that have devices. They have sophisticated children and grandchildren who can help out. Uh, with issues with, you know, providing those devices. So, you know, Merry Christmas, Mom, here's a, a new iPhone or an yeah. iPad. Yeah. And, and frankly, we see the same thing in the physical hospital where there are children and grandchildren escorting their elderly uh, grandparents on site for visit. So, you know, there is a way to take the sophistication of the younger generation and support the uh, older generation, as you said. But we are, you know, obviously trying to work out what does this mean for different people in terms of the haves and the have-nots technologically, financially, from an information technology standpoint, et cetera? Yes, it's a work in progress, but I like the idea of the intergenerational connection where it's possible. It makes a lot of sense. One other question on this topic, and then I want to start looking forward. I remember years ago when I worked in the Medicare program, Medicare didn't cover telemedicine. Of course, we hardly had telemedicine back in that day. More recently, I believe Medicare is covering telemedicine. So can you just speak a little bit to, it's almost like a two-part question, Bill, the insurance industry's adoption of telemedicine. And if we didn't have COVID, how long do you think it would have taken for this whole process to unfold in the way that it has because of COVID? Yeah, well, the insurance industry has definitely adopted telemedicine. So you're seeing significant changes in Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement and reimbursement by, for example, the blues. And in fact, there are advertisements here in our local region where our local uh, Blue Cross provider is saying explicitly in their, in their advertisements on television that we support telemedicine or we endorse telemedicine. So that's a that's a 180 degree turn from, you know, say a year and a half, two years ago. How long might that have taken absent the pandemic? Yes. You know, that's speculative, but I would say a decade. A decade. 
Yeah. Looking at the timeline of other things, uh, an example, we're going from fee-for-service reimbursement to value-based reimbursement. Value meaning we pay for the outcome, we don't pay for the encounter. That's taken a decade or more to, to really latch on, although we were talking about it a decade ago. So, yeah. you know, the U.S. healthcare industry is remarkably resistant to rapid change. Yes. Uh, you know, as we've learned. Yes. Okay, now we're going to get into the hub of looking forward, which is to look forward and have you speak to what you think might be some of the changes or the trends that we might see in the field of telemedicine bill over the next several years and what impact you might see those having on patients. And I would throw into this patient adoption as we move through the generations, it'll be probably easier for people to use telemedicine. They'll be more comfortable with it. So if you could speak a little bit to that, it's hard to predict things. We didn't know a few years ago what was coming, but from your perspective, what sort of changes do you see in the world of telemedicine? Good question. You know, we've talked primarily here uh, with some exceptions about a telemedical encounter being something that involves a doctor on one end and a patient on the other end. And in reality, telemedicine is sort of a, a bigger tent than that. During the pandemic, for example, we did something we call automated hovering, where if somebody uh, had a COVID diagnosis, we would provide them with a pulse oximeter, a finger oxygen monitor, as you may have seen they're available in, in drugstores now and, and on Amazon. Uh, and then we would do twice daily check-ins with them in an automated text messaging fashion. So do you feel different from our last check-in? Are you having the following symptoms? And basically, uh, we had an engine that was monitoring a group of patients essentially automatically using uh, check-ins and taking advantage of a device like a pulse oximeter. As many of you know, the devices we carry, and that includes phones, and it includes things like watches, are being equipped increasingly with technology that would support healthcare. So I saw something recently about, I don't know, it may have been uh, a Samsung or some other Android provider that was proposing to monitor electrolytes or secretions through the skin onto that device using a phone. Certainly, uh, some of the smartwatches can monitor blood oxygen levels, can monitor for arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. I mean, these kinds of things are all part of telemedicine. That stuff is going to keep coming at us. It's driven by the technologies that are available, uh, consumed by patients, doesn't require insurance necessarily to make it happen or go. So that, that's going. Uh, in our world, in my world, or in a hospital and health system world, uh, we, we believe that telemedicine is a an ideal way, as you said earlier, to help with access. So, you know, it might have been a year ago that somebody would call up and they'd say, I'd like an appointment with an somethingologist. And we would say, absolutely. Uh, our next available appointment is in three months. Yes. And then we we now have the ability to triage you know, some of those patients would come in three months and they'd see the doctor and the doctor would say, you don't need to see me. You can go back to your, your regular doctor. 
Yes. Some of them obviously would require further care, but a lot of that triage function, that access function, we can get from three months to we, you know, say we can see you this afternoon or tomorrow telemedically or, you know, come on site for something different. So that whole world will change. Um, things like hospice care, home care, all of these things, we're moving from the nurse drives to you to the nurse checks in with you virtually and, you know, change the whole way in which we do that kind of care. So telemedicine is going to have subtle impacts in lots of areas because everybody got exposed to it during the pandemic and has learned how to use it. So it's not going to be this big hurdle of, I have to figure out how to do that on my phone or my laptop, whatever. So I think those things are absolutely coming in. And, you know, as we said at the outset, the insurers have come around to recognize that there is a place for telemedicine. And, you know, we're going to have to learn which things are best done by telemedicine and which things are best done in person. And we'll do that with increasing sophistication and increasing competence because, uh, you know, robotics is coming. There's a whole new revolution of robotics we're going to start to see where there may be a combination of information flow with a physical robotic medically oriented device in the home that it could be something that moves around it might be your smart toilet it might be a smart refrigerator <laughs> yeah. that all of these things that may help out with uh healthcare in ways that we can't yet uh precisely identify very exciting times and exciting advancements and for the most part very positive advancements a few follow-up questions bill and i'm just speculating here but i'd like you to comment Will we get to the point where just as we have specialists in certain medical areas, dermatologists, rheumatologists, and so forth, that within those specialties, we will have telemedicine rheumatologists, <laughs> telemedicine behavioral, where they never even leave their house, theoretically, their office is in their house, and all they do is their practice is telemedicine. Does that sound a little crazy? It's not only not crazy, it's already kind of happening around us. And I'm going to give you a sort of a provocative example. There are doctors that specialize in men's health. Yeah. Uh, as you may have seen, they, they specialize in sort of things like uh, remote testosterone replacement or products that make your hair grow richer and a different color or something that helps with erectile dysfunction. These guys and gals are essentially specializing in this propping up the aging male in functions that might be deteriorating. That's a sort of a new specialty. I'm saying that with a little twinkle in my eye, but <laughs> you know, you can imagine the same sorts of things in, in other more traditional fields. Frankly, in I mentioned tele-intensive care at the outset. There are, there are people that adapt to that naturally. They're very comfortable sitting in a command center and uh, directing, working over audiovisual links with doctors at the bedside. They have the right diplomatic skills and the right uh, degree of gravitas to help out with that. Uh, there are other doctors that just frankly, they're very good bedside intensivists and not, not so good in the tele situation. We have people that specialize in tele-intensive care and, you know, for different reasons, maybe including disabilities or we have uh, older nurses who are their cognitive understanding of intensive care patients has, if anything, increased, but just the physical work of lifting patients at the bedside 
they're they're you know they've got it's too beats their body up too much lifting 200 300 pound patients is it's a lot of work it's like spending a session at the gym so they specialize yeah. in teleintensive care so i think you know you're spot on with that observation that that will evolve but at the same time i think we're beginning to port telemedical education into med school and into our uh, training program so everybody's going to have some exposure and may need to have some degree of competence in using telemedical paradigms in their care but i think you will see people that uh, specialize in that and that you know they live in wherever they want to live you know like we're seeing other people say you know I, i'm a i'm a remote worker from now on exactly that was actually going to be one of my questions was whether or not it was going to be worked into the training so let me ask you something else and this is a huge question and it was one that concerned the insurers and you alluded to that as you know for years and I'm going back to the time when I worked in Medicare and, and there were proposals and hearings for national health insurance. For years, there have been and continue to be concerns about the cost of health care. And we've got an aging population. What have you seen so far, or maybe even looking, projecting outward as we're trying to do here, is or will be the impact of using telemedicine more than it's ever been used before on the cost of healthcare. You know, it's funny you should say that. As I was riding in this morning, I was hearing a segment on uh, national public radio about egregious billing practices. Somebody who went to an ED emergency ward for a, what turned out to be an ovarian cyst and ended up with a, an $18,000 bill that, you know, had to do with the CAT scan that she had and bills for a couple of IV injections. So a lot of that stuff is legacy billing practices. I would say that we're so attentive to this kind of thing that telemedicine billing will be tightly scrutinized and probably not able to get into that legacy situation. But I could imagine ways in which telemedicine would cut down on medical costs. So, you know, where previously you might transfer a patient from one place to another using a, an ambulance or a, a helicopter for uh, evaluation that might then prove that nothing is needed to be done. I mean, the ways in which being able to sort of make that decision at the beginning of the problem might cut down on costs. So I think in some areas, I mean, clearly people will call out any increases in costs associated with telemedicine, but I think it's a mixed bag. And I think there, there are real opportunities for reduction in medical costs if telemedicine is used thoughtfully. Certainly that's the way we think about it and plan to do it. And the other aspect which you alluded to, which would augur well, is the preventive aspects which telemedicine can be used for, probably is being used for, as well as the tracking that you talked about. Yeah, I mentioned telestroke. So you know, imagine the cost of somebody who has a telestroke consultation in their local ER where the telestroke doctor advises to give this clot-busting drug. There's a fee paid for that teleconsultation, but at the end of the day, you bust a clot that prevents somebody from becoming hemiplegic or losing massive function and then becoming a sort of a substantially much more costly patient because they didn't have this, uh, not preventative, but they didn't have this early intervention that cut way down on the disability associated with the disease. And again, the patient didn't have to travel. They were treated on site with uh, you know, a brief consultation with somebody remotely. 
So I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about the potential of telemedicine to reduce costs when used appropriately. Yes. And I love, again, the impact that it is having now and certainly can have on rural health. Yep. That I think is so important. One last question that might be of interest to our listeners, and that is something you touched upon just briefly, Bill. Where right now do you see telemedicine as not being appropriate in terms of specialty care? If you have a dermatological problem, you got some kind of mark on your skin, maybe the doctor needs to see it in person. I'm just wondering, where would you say, nah, that's not something we can do with telemedicine. We may never be able to do that. Where isn't it appropriate? So, you know, there are examples uh, you may have seen recently, quite recently, that Google has a European, but not yet FDA approved, derm uh, lesion identification app that AI enabled that purports to identify and, and diagnose lesions. Uh, you know, you see apps that can identify trees and the age of trees, you know, surfacing in Instagram. I mean, these kinds of things, not just AI, maybe this is throwing stones in a glass house, but this men's health type of telemedicine I mentioned is something that's been sort of a little sketchy for a long time. You fill out some cursory form and you get a, a vial full of Viagra in the mail. I mean, these, these are the kinds of things that move into what we traditional providers would say uh, is either essentially overuse of the technology for a commercial purpose on the one hand, or you know, overuse of something that might be a good screening tool. I hear I'm thinking about the dermatology app but really ought to be verified by a real doctor. I, we're going to have to sort that out because, you know, these algorithms that identify faces are so good now that there's clearly promise in these, in these uh, sort of telemedical uh, visual identification apps, but we just have to figure out what's the right balance between a screening identification tool and one that's a diagnostic identification tool. And this is a, a big concern to us in the industry, obviously, and also to the FDA. Yes, understood. Looking forward is also called that because we're looking forward to opportunities. And as you know, Bill, a lot of people lost their jobs during COVID. We got a lot of young people in high school going into college, in college, trying to figure out what they want to do people changing careers, changing jobs. And then we always have investors and entrepreneurs, God bless them. <laughs> so that's a disparate group, but I'm just curious, you're optimistic about the field of telemedicine. Where do you see opportunities for any of those kinds of individuals, Bill, looking down the road? Well, you know, this is a whole new segment of the healthcare industry, telemedicine. And it comes with associated opportunities and risk for students looking forward to potential careers on the one hand for, as you said, the investor and VC community looking for, you know, the next Uber or, or what have you. And I'm in conversations with people pitching me on that kind of thing. People asking me for advice on whether this thing makes sense or doesn't constantly. I, you know, it's sort of a uh, I joke about this a little bit. The med student and his buddy, who's a computer scientist, come up with a bright idea, and they've got a company. And 
you know, the, yeah. some of those things are uh, real and promising and and bright ideas that haven't been thought through before. Some of them are just uh, use the term silly petrics, which I think was a, a Letterman term back in the day. But um, <laughs> I, I think that the knee jerk reaction on the part of incumbents, the people that are in the field, is often to view this kind of new technology as a threat. You know, my bias and my inclination is new technologies are coming at us and have been for centuries. The stethoscope was a threat. The ophthalmoscope was a threat. All these things, you know, sort of represented a threat to a, a certain population and yet have become critical parts of how we provide healthcare. So I look at this optimistically and, you know, I think you have to look at these in a balanced way and understand what they bring, what they don't bring, uh, the perils, the promises. And, you know, that's what the VCs are uh, in business for. And that's, I have two 25-year-old twin boys, one of whom went into healthcare IT, uh, the other one into environmental management, both areas in which there are real opportunities to, to improve the world. Absolutely. One other thing, patient panel sizes and the amount of time that nurse practitioners and physicians spend with a patient have been big issues. Does telemedicine have any impact on those, Bill? You know, that's an interesting question. I can imagine that telemedicine would increase the size of a potential panel that you could manage because you're, you're taken away from the physical constraints of running an individual patient through a practice on a given day. How many chairs do you have in the waiting room? How many examination rooms do you have in your office? You could have, maybe you had 10 examination rooms for patients, and that was, that was sort of your, your boundary points. I could have one or 10, but no more than that at any given time in a, in a waiting area. I'm using a number here. Yeah. Maybe you go to nine and use that 10th room for virtual visits that are quick and you know address problems strategically and quickly. So I could imagine that the panel size could increase with no other negative impacts and potential positive impacts on your ability to care for patients. Yeah, it's something that occurred to me that it might have a positive impact. And your example of your twin boys, and by the way, I have twin girls, so I, <laughs> I sort of know what that's all about. But what I was going to say is it speaks to great opportunities for younger people who may not necessarily become physicians, but even in the field of telemedicine, I would think there'll be a lot of opportunities. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are going to be new job types. I mean, if you look at the healthcare IT industry, honestly, there wasn't one 20 years ago. <laughs> it's true. We have six, 700 people working in healthcare IT at Penn. Wow. So, I mean, that's the way to look at this. These things have pluses and minuses. Yes. Uh, but but there are new industries within industries that are being spun up as we speak. Yes. I guess in crisis, we often see winners and losers. And that's yep. kind of what you're saying. Bill, this has been wonderful. Can you please share with us how people can find out more about you and what you're up to and Penn Medicine and anything else that you would like them to know about? Yeah, well, Penn Medicine is uh, the organization in which I grew up. As I as I mentioned, I've been here for a long time. It's a great organization that uh, has grown substantially during my career. And you know, in terms of me personally, I've written a couple of books. 
as you mentioned. One is called smart medicine. The other is called the edge of medicine. Uh, they talk about forward-looking healthcare technologies. They're written for a, a lay person. Uh, as I mentioned, my 92-year-old mother was able to read them and find interesting <laughs> content there, as were my then teenage twins. So there's your answer on that. And thanks for uh, the opportunity to have this really interesting conversation. Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm just going to finish by saying there's an expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I think your mother is a good example with you, because you clearly have a very curious mind, and you're intellectual, and your mother at 92 is still doing this stuff. So I don't know about your father, but certainly your mother has had a profound influence on you, and now you're doing it with your 25-year-old twin boys. Yeah, well, I mean, just to close on that, my father was an internist at Penn, so you're, I thought you were going to allude to that. And uh, he practiced with a fountain pen, with uh, index cards, <laughs> and onion skin typed paper was the medical record. So <laughs> I've seen a dramatic change in the way that we practice watching first through his eyes and then through my own. That's terrific. Thanks for sharing that. Bill, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's jeff Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F dot com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward. <laughs>